Listen to the wind. Drifting past your senses is the fuel that fires the imagination. Close your eyes and breathe deeply. Consider the element that floods into your lungs, the very same substance that long ago fanned an ancient spark, ignited by a primeval author, chiseling veiled petroglyphs across a dim cave wall. Carried on a breeze spanning eons, it was the breath that gave rise to dinosaurs, grew papyrus for paper, and dried vibrant oils brushed over canvas. It has since walked on the surface of the moon. It fondly recollects a childhood memory, violently reshapes the landscape of history, and blows away the fog surrounding the unknown. It rushes by in a heartbeat, inhaled at first, exhaled at last. One moment here, the next gone into thin air. The place is Alaska. The time, zero dark 30, early morning chill, resting on the tarmac of Eelson Air Force Base, 26 miles southeast of Fairbanks. Me? I'm Captain Leroy King, B-47 bomber pilot for the Strategic Air Command, SAC for short. The day is Monday, April 7, 1952, at least, that is, what there has been of it so far. Unremarkable, really. Restless sleep, followed up by an unscheduled trip to the latrine to undo the damage left behind in the wake of last night's ration, some kind of god-awful belly bomber. As luck would have it, I managed to make it over the primary target just in time to drop some ordnance with enough residual fallout to keep my crew at bay from the head for an hour or two. Damage having already been done, I stumbled down to the officer's mess for a hot cup of engine oil and then stood staring out through the frosted window glass at my ship, a B-47 Stratajet christened King's Little Queenie, a long-range, six-engined, turbo-powered strategic bomber. She's a regal sight to be sure, all decked out in silver plate and gleaming like Excalibur in the harsh light of four portable flood lamps. Shadows danced across her fuselage as my ground crew busied themselves with the pre-flight checklist. Everything needed for the usual mission, airborne alert, topping off the tanks and racking up a payload in the bomb bay. Gulping down the last of my coffee, I tossed the cup in the sink and headed down the hall to don the pressure suit. We'll be airborne within the hour, just as soon as the mission prior brings it back from the wild blue. That's the job, after all. 24 hours a day, drawing a line in the sand, or snow in this case, beyond which no Soviet counterpart may pass. The powers at D, they call this situation a Cold War. I suppose that's as good a description as any. I heard it said once, 
that what we're doing up here is referred to in the halls of Washington as existential deterrence. Enough mutual destruction to bring about the end of the world. Armageddon. We lug these nightmare chess pieces around a game board between us and them, with targets near and far, pawns to be sacrificed in the event of a first strike. Okay, Lee, time to get the hell out of your head. Ah. Oh. I let out a long, weary sigh as I considered the implications of my job. You leave your conscience on the ground when you light the Jado and climb to altitude. You follow orders, no matter how surreal and far-reaching those orders might be. The average citizen of planet Earth goes about life inside a vacuum of perceived safety. The days rise and the nights fall, and somewhere in between there is time. Time to work, time to play, time to rest. We hope there will be plenty of it, time that is, though the truth of the matter is there will never be enough. A wise man once wrote that we are only immortal for a limited time. It follows that every citizen of this bright blue marble must face down the inevitable someday. What if that day were today? What if two sides of a coin decided on the spur of the moment that they could no longer coexist? The ensuing toss would be a dangerous game indeed. One can only hope the breath of life is still considered precious even in so lofty a firmament where death might fall at any moment, dropping through a set of Bombay doors, high in thin air. The DEFCON siren sounded about 30 seconds after I had stepped out on the tarmac on my way to flying what I expected would be a routine mission. No matter how many times you run the simulation and train for it, nothing can possibly prepare you for the real thing. Global Thermonuclear War. Knowing the implications full well, my stride broke into a flat-out run to my ship, flanked by my crew. All three of us scrambling headlong into what we knew were precious seconds. The difference between a first strike and almost certain annihilation. Even before everyone was on board, I had the turbines spinning up and clearance from the tower. As soon as the hatches were sealed and the ground crew signaled all clear, I throttled up and headed for the runway. Without hesitation, I fired the Jados and held my girl steady as she lunged forward down the runway, picking up speed, packing plenty of force to send us rocketing skyward ahead of a long, sinuous contrail she was leaving in our wake. Wrenching the yoke back with all my strength, I felt the nose gear leave the ground first and with it a good deal of collective vibration coursing through the aircraft. 
As soon as the rest of my wheels were up, I retracted everything into her belly, reducing drag and sending us up like a screaming silver bullet into the murky veil of clouds overhead. Here's hoping this don't turn into an all-out Charlie Foxtrot, boys, I called out over my helmet headset. Never was too keen on buying myself a farm, especially one that's irradiated. I waited for some kind of response, hoping my little snippet of dark humor might fend off the prevailing doom and gloom. Jeffrey Porter, Jiffy Pop, my co-pilot and tail gunner, was the first to fire back one of his signature zingers. Hey, I already bought the farm, Skipper, he quipped. All I need now is a herd of two-headed cows, or four-legged chickens, and I'll have myself an honest-to-goodness income selling produce to the dystopian mutants. I heard my navigator bombardier chime in from his perch in the nose cone. You're a real comedian, Jiffy Pop. You should have gone into stand-up. Clay Sheridan, Bullseye, wasn't one for joking around when it came to his job description. If and when we managed to make it to the primary or secondary target, Clay was the master of ceremonies, the guy that peers down through the looking glass and with a push of a button, snuffs out a significant portion of the world population. Can we cut some of the excess radio chatter, fellas? This ain't my idea of happily ever after. For a moment, I tipped my head back against the seat and stared up beyond the canopy at the thinning cloud cover as my queenie broke through the overcast and into the bright blue morning. Hereafter, bullseye, I chided. Keep a weather eye open for a set of pearly gates. We should be at just about the right altitude now. After a moment, I heard Clay's microphone crackle to life again, and he replied, Roger that, Skipper. Though honestly, old St. Pete will most likely be manning the anti-aircraft guns if he spots Queenie on the glide path. They don't reserve a room upstairs for guys like us. We'll be belly up in brimstone for our trespasses. No one said anything for a long time after that, until finally I went about the business of mission status. What's the word, Jiffy? Go or no go? I stated dryly. I listened to the cold, dispassionate hiss of static, dreading the reply. We've got the go code, Skipper. Orders are to proceed past failsafe to our primary and or secondary target and deliver the payload. I broke my communication and loosened my grip on the yoke, not wanting to believe what I just heard. Oh my God, I whispered to myself. Oh my dear God, what kind of madness is this? As I superficially guided my aircraft in the general direction I'd been flying, I heard Porter and Sheridan conveying target coordinate information and guidance. We're supposed to proceed along the length of the Alaskan Peninsula, crossing into Soviet airspace beyond the Aleutian Islands. Skipper, you reading this? It took me a moment to register that I was participating in this overtly cold 
calculating decision. Finally, I blurted out. Yeah, yeah, loud and clear, Bullseye. Coming to new course now. Starting a wide bank course correction, I couldn't help but think that somehow, in some way, something was very, very wrong. Like for some reason, the whole wide world had just suddenly tilted way off kilter. While my B-47 straightened out on a new flight path, I picked up my old canteen I kept strapped under the instrument panel and took a long swig. The water was cold as ice and felt good on my throat going down, probably dried out due to the realization of what we'd just been called upon to do, namely participation in the collective annihilation of humanity. All right, fellas. I aimed this arrow in the right direction. Like it or not, we all knew the arrangement when we signed up for this detail. Now I know for a fact that everyone on this aircraft is chewing over reservations about thermonuclear combat. Now is not the time. It didn't take long for a rebuttal. And just when might it be the time, Skipper? Ten seconds before I press the chicken switch and cry out, bombs away? It was Sheridan, his voice edgy and abrupt, sounding off his considered opinion for a course of action he never, ever expected to take. I closed the channel for a moment to formulate a response, but damned if I could come up with one. The rush of our turbines and the cold static of dead air grated on my already heightened sense of impending doom. All I could do is fly. Thankfully, Sheridan broke the radio silence and managed to keep the conversation going, albeit in the opposite direction of our target. You ever see a nuclear detonation for yourself, Skipper? He waited a moment for me to respond, and when I didn't, he kept going anyway. It's like punching a hole straight down into hell. Out of that hole comes the devil's fist reaching up to heaven with infernal defiance, wagging a five-finger death punch at God for being cast out of paradise. Bullseye's words hung like choking smoke in my oxygen mask. Whatever you believe, heaven, hell, or somewheres in between, it didn't take a rocket scientist to understand his poignant imagery. Photographs and newsreel footage, Bullseye. Never stood staring down ground zero in the flesh. I finally responded. Yeah. Sheridan acknowledged knowingly. Well. He continued. That arrangement we signed up for, the one you're talking about, it was never supposed to actually happen, Skip. I always figured being a part of a deterrent force meant we were supposed to stomp around the playground carrying a really big stick. Carry it, Skip. Not haul off and swing it. That turn you just executed? I guess we're all choked up on the bat right now. God help us. And that was the end of our little shared confession. Not because we all decided to turn tail and run, nothing so noble as that. No, we stopped the ongoing chatter because all at once, every system on the aircraft 
started shutting down in a cacophony of alert buzzers and alarms. More disturbing than anything amidst the wailing tones was the distinct, unmistakable modulation of Queenie's engines winding down. What the hell? I shouted into my headset. A bullseye. Can you confirm a flame out for me? From his vantage point in the nose cone, Sheridan had a bullseye view along the leading edge of the wings and the engine nacelles underneath. Talk to me, bud. Did we just lose a turbine? I asked. No, Skip. Came the reply. You just lost all of them. Is there a contingency for flying this beast? Dead stick? Dear God. I responded. This must be divine intervention. I knew full well I had some altitude to work with, but even that wasn't going to last for long. Checking the instrumentation for evidence of a headwind, I started running various contingency scenarios through my fevered cranium and damned if I could formulate a way out of what was sure to be the inevitable nosedive. In a knee-jerk, spur-of-the-moment reaction, I called out, Mayday! Mayday! into the headset then realized that by now, the radio was either dead or tuned to a secure channel that would avoid any last-minute reset of the go code. Damn it, fellas! I shouted. Looks like we're out of the game and on our own. Hope y'all checked your shoots this morning, because I'm thinking a bailout might just be the order of the day. I'm staying in the driver's seat for the duration, so don't wait for me to eject subsequently jerked the ripcord. Bullseye, Jiffy Pop, you hear me? Time to go skydiving, boys. No way, Skip. Sheridan responded. This ain't how it was all supposed to end. No. I told him. It's not. This was supposed to end with the three of us murdering innocent people. Look at the bright side. At least now we can all go to our graves with a clear conscience. Go on, bail out now, or I'll open up the hatch and throw your sorry asses out. There was a long, solemn break in the chatter, and then finally, Porter committed to my revised plan of attack. Roger that, Skipper. We'll see you on the other side, one way or another. Bullseye, are you with me? Gonna be a long walk back to base, and I'd sure hate to hoof it all the way by myself. Besides, You'd be lost without me. Another quiet moment of reflection, and then Sheridan said, Count of three, JP. Wherever you touch down, be sure to light up a flare. I'll find you. Then, addressing me, he added, Lee, been a privilege. You know that, right? Get the hell out of my airplane. I chided dryly. You're just excess baggage. After that, there was nothing left to say. Besides, I needed to get on with the business of flying into a mountain, or maybe skidding across a frozen lake bed that'll crack beneath the gear and send me for a cold swim. Ah, well, there wasn't going to be a hero's welcome for me back home anyway. I heard the telltale loud bang of Sheridan's ejection seat as it launched him down from the nose cone to a safe distance for his parachute to deploy. Several seconds later, I realized I still had company in the co-pilot's seat 
behind me. You know for a fact I can't blow the lid off Queenie and leave you flying a convertible. Right, Skip? You dumbass colonel of unpopped corn. I fired back. Don't worry about me. You know Bullseye can't find his way out of a paper bag, rip that canopy off its ever-loving hinges, and go. That's an order, airman. I shouted. All right, Lee. All right. Put the flaps down a notch, open up the Bombay doors, and I'll take the plunge, leaving you here with a fighting chance at survival. You do that, Skip. Otherwise, you'll have to stop flying the aircraft and pry me out of this harness with your bare hands. Capiche? I knew there was no point in arguing the matter any further. Porter was one stubborn son of a bitch, and I wasn't about to take my hands off the yoke. Fine! I fired back. But in case you ain't noticed, all the systems are offline. If you're bailing out the Bombay, you'll have to go down there and use a can opener. Even considering the dire situation, I still managed to coax a chuckle from Jiffy Pop. <laughs> you got a copy of the owner's manual, Skip? I can't remember where the hand crank is located, smartass. I replied. The manual is back there in the glove box. Flaps down. I confirmed. Now get. Sitting there with a white knuckle grip on the controls, I waited. Until finally, there came the hollow metallic sound of gears grinding, assurance that the last remaining member of my crew knew how to follow orders. It took Jiffy Pop some time to manually crank the doors down, but after a good deal of grunts and heavy breathing in my headset, he finally confirmed. Well, that's it, Skipper. Unless you require any further assistance from me, I guess. It's man overboard. You sure this is how it has to play out? I took a long, introspective moment to respond with something profound. But when nothing came to mind, I said, Queenie's an expensive piece of hardware, Jeff. I'm gonna do what I can to keep the taxpayer's investment in working order, if at all possible. Go on now, Porter. You're dismissed. And that was it. Glancing back over my shoulder out the canopy, I confirmed my former co-pilot had cleared the underbelly on the way out, and several seconds after that, I saw his chute deploy. Gently patting the altimeter, as I studied my lofty height and how far of a fall I had to work with, I whispered, Just you and me now, little Queenie. Let's you and me see if we can find ourselves a headwind. Of course, my mind was already hard at work, trying to formulate a glide path, some kind of best chance scenario to get me back on the deck. Be it snow, ice, or solid rock. Interestingly enough, my attention was drawn outside my aircraft by an oddly misplaced atmospheric anomaly. Just ahead, looming out of the cockpit glass, was a towering thunderhead, an enormous cloud bank that rose so high overhead that I could scarce see the cap. Obscured by a wall of dense, churning moisture, I realized that it was intermittent flashes of electromagnetic discharge inside the cloud that had caught my eye. For a moment, 
I even entertained the notion that this was already one of many thermonuclear detonations and that, mercifully, I was about to become deep-fried spam in a can. I couldn't figure out how any kind of storm like this had formed so far north. This thing looked, for all the world, like it could spawn a tornado or two at any moment now, not just dump the characteristic record snowfall. Realizing that this was no time to be overthinking inclement weather, let alone executing a way around it, I held on tight and braced for impact. In the few seconds I had before penetrating the cloud wall, another gut-wrenching conundrum occurred to me, adding yet another negative hash mark to my bullet point checklist for a safe landing. How to get the gear down. There was a hand crank down below the cockpit, but with the crew already scuttled, vacating my post to wind it out was a free-fall recipe for disaster. Plan B was the drop system that uses gravity to deploy the landing gear into a down and locked position. To accomplish this, I reached out and activated the switch, a mechanical handle in the cockpit which, when engaged, released the uplock. I could feel a low vibration in the yoke as gravity started grudgingly pulling the landing gear down with a grinding metal-on-metal metal groom. Once in position, a loud bang from below signaled that, gratefully, the gear had mechanically locked in place and it was now safe for Queenie to stand on. Okay, Leroy, cross that one off. Now all you gotta do is just keep the nose up until you can find some place nice and flat to set her down. Child's play, right? Well, no, but not the task at hand just yet anyway. As Queenie pierced the cloud and soared headlong into the violently churning storm winds within, it quickly became all I could do to focus on maintaining level flight, effectively pushing thoughts of setting down with a landing I could walk away from to background noise. Brilliant bolts of lightning arced all around me as I rocketed downstairs, on several occasions contacting Queenie's fuselage with a resounding crack, sending ripples of electrical discharge like St. Elmo's fire along her hull. With no visual reference to establish my aircraft orientation, I fixed my gaze on the altimeter and airspeed and held my breath as the needles for both gauges spun in opposing directions like a pair of manic tops, telling me that at any moment now, the sight of a snow-capped cliff face might loom out of the chaos to catch my fall in the worst way possible. Warning alarms eerily silent due to the system failure and subsequent flameout, I suppose I should be grateful for the lack of ongoing details relating to my descent, but all I could think of is why these two gauges remained operational. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, Leroy. Stay in the saddle and ride. No doubt about it. Queenie was bucking like a wild mare, all right, kicking and snorting all the way out of the gate, angry at my efforts to break her spirit hell-bent on throwing me lifeless to the ground. The last ride of Leroy King and his bomb-toting, world-killing stratagem. 
I chuckled coldly to myself. A snow-capped cliff face will do just fine, I mumbled. Finish the job, here and now, so I'm no longer obligated to finish mine. Now, I suppose that being a seasoned pilot, I should have recognized an unusual set of circumstances creeping up on me. To be quite honest, my head was all wrapped up in doing what I was supposed to be doing, namely, that is, flying the aircraft. So, when a violent shudder rolled across the wings like a seismic disturbance, I just chalked it up as turbulence. In my own defense, the vertical speed indicator gauge was one of those instruments currently listed as AWOL. So as this particular anomaly commenced, I was still single-mindedly watching my altitude ticking off to an unhappy ending. Then, without fanfare or even a single sigh of relief escaping from my lips, the tires touched down gently on the ground, right down on good old terra firma, without so much as a rubber-meets-the-road squeak. After that, near silence, save the soft hiss of snow, being pushed along the cockpit glass by a trace breath of wind outside. Releasing my grip on the yoke, I allowed the pent-up tension in my neck and shoulders to release, sensing that, for some reason, this might just be an intermission between two acts of ongoing apocalypse. Even though I couldn't explain it, this was undeniably one of those landings to walk away from, and I'm gonna do just that. The captain had gone down with his ship all right, as captains are supposed to do. In my case, less out of duty and more to save the Air Force a buttload in replacement costs. Well, sir, the old girl's on the deck now, and there was no longer any reason not to bail out. Of course, not without first verifying that the bombs were still secure in the bay. My bird was now what the top brass referred to as a broken arrow, and as horrified as I was at becoming death, the destroyer of worlds, I still maintained a sense of duty to keep these awful weapons from falling into the wrong hands. The Stratajet didn't just simply land herself. I'm a damn good pilot, just not that good. So then, once I had eyes on the nukes and saw that they were still safely tucked away, I took a short climb down through the hatch and then stood there in the blowing snow, waiting for my eyes to adjust to the blinding white glare of sunlight reflected across a pristine landscape of ice and jagged rock. Queenie had been set down with kid gloves all right, laid to rest near the bank of an immense frozen lake. Curling wisps of drifting snow went swirling like sidewinder snakes over the glistening blue-white surface, pushed along on relentless currents of air. The scene was stark, yet strikingly beautiful in its magnificent desolation. Towering snow-capped peaks framed the vista on all sides, giving the undeniable impression of an honest-to-God Roman arena. Though in all honesty, this was no game. For all I know, the rest of the world is now a smoldering cinder, and the fates have decided to park me here 
in the cold with a few extra hours to kick around, watching a thick, lethal cloud of fallout and impending nuclear winter as it fans out across what's left of the world up here, killing off the last man on Earth. Well, I thought to myself, at least I can shuffle off this mortal coil knowing that it wasn't one of my multi-megaton gadgets that killed us all. Stepping out from beneath the wing of my disabled bird, I examined the immediate surroundings and came to the conclusion that I needed to don myself a few more layers beyond the flight suit. Every item of landscape for as far as the eye could see was either blanketed with deep snow or frozen over with ice. The native tundra, for the most part keeping secrets, indistinguishable and potentially hazardous for someone suffering from a hypothermia hangover. Of course, the other option being just to wait out the war in the cockpit, out of the frigid breeze with my legs propped up on the yoke. Eventually, something was bound to come to pass if I do nothing more than wait for the other shoe to drop. I chuckled to myself. Ha <laughs> ha! Shoe, bomb, what's the difference? Either way, mankind is getting kicked to the curb. Deciding I might just as well take my chances sightseeing, I climbed back inside the belly of my grounded bird and rounded up a substantial coat, gloves, tinted goggles, and even a scarf. Items not all that unique when you happen to be stationed way up north in the land of the so-called Midnight Sun. For the most part, now adequately protected from the elements, I shuffled back down the ladder and pulled the hatch shut behind me. Regardless of my fate, this aircraft still contained a buttload of destruction. Granted, the bombs weren't armed and there wasn't a lock on the door, but I still had a sense of duty and a little voice echoing in my head from my superior officer telling me to keep everything in my charge under wraps as much as possible under the circumstances. Warm enough now for the moment, I trudged across a long length of crunching snow-shrouded ice in the direction of the nearest low-lying rock formation, anxious to be standing somewhere that wouldn't crack wide open and collapse, dropping me down a fathom or two. Eventually making my way to higher ground, I sat down on an outcropping of exposed jet-black rock and glanced back at my stratajet. From a distance, the Queenie looked like little more than a child's toy, a harmless plaything left outside after the children had all been called in for supper. Of course, this couldn't be further from the truth. My aircraft was a bona fide instrument of death. Deadly play reserved for those that understood the concept of deterrence and refuse to be deterred. Bullies in a global sandbox ready to use their toys to annihilate the entire playground for nothing more than a flimsy, transient disagreement. I leaned back against my rock throne and laughed loudly. <laughs> Enough that my manic cackle bounced around the cliff walls lining my vast arena and echoed back to me in solitary defiance. Let the games begin. I shouted. 
Bring out Bring your out champion. Your champion. And let's settle let's this, settle this. Here, here and now. As if my battle cry had somehow carried with it the power to startle the ancient gods to attention, a brilliant flash of lightning erupted inside the towering thunderhead above me, sending glowing columns of electrical discharge like blinding spiderwebs across the sky. As I looked on, in utter amazement, the flickering tendrils rippled and danced, then faded away. In their brilliant wake, a large dark object started descending through the vapor inside the cloud. Nearly convinced now that I had just witnessed an airburst, that is, a nuclear detonation of considerable altitude above the earth, I leaned back even further on my lofty perch and closed my eyes, waiting for the inevitable shockwave to squash me like a bug. Without so much as a second thought, I even pulled a cigarette from the zippered pocket of my coat and stuck it between my teeth, one last drag on the biggest coffin nail of all time. I heard the corresponding thunderclap, followed by the discharge, and then nothing. Almost disappointed that the fire hadn't roared down from heaven to light my smoke, I opened my eyes. Levitating there beneath the boiling supercell and slowly dropping toward the icy lake bed was another aircraft. A strategic bomber of comparable size and firepower to my own. Only this one clearly did not have its origins in the good old U.S. of A. Of course, as a strategic bomber pilot, we're trained to recognize at a glance the configuration and designation of enemy forces and recognize it, I most certainly did. Amaya Shashev M4, nicknamed the Bison, a sweep-winged Soviet bomber, fell almost imperceptibly, tapering wisps of cloud moisture still coursing around the wingtips and fuselage. Ultimately, the Soviet war machine came to rest lightly touching down a short distance away from my own aircraft, both silver-plated juggernauts facing down one another in what I guess could be considered the last stand of the not-so-cold war. No, not cold, not anymore. If the madness proceeds to zero hour, things are gonna heat up, but quick. I heard the soft crunch of the tires gently settling on the frozen lake bed. Seconds after that, a hatch in the belly of the ship cracked open with a loud clank, and a man dressed head to toe in a pressure suit and helmet, I'm guessing my Soviet counterpart, dropped down from the opening and looked around. Focusing his gaze in my direction, the pilot cautiously made his way behind the bison's landing gear and drew his sidearm holding it up at the ready, I suppose, to show me he meant business. The gesture seemed insignificant in the face of what our mutual orders dictated, but I backed away a few steps anyway, just to prove I wasn't interested in hand-to-hand -hand combat just yet. Who are you? Why did you bring me to this place? 
Что это за сила, которой вы обладаете? I had no idea how to respond. Shrugging my shoulders, I pointed at my mouth and shook my head. No Russian! I shouted back. I don't understand you. I'm sure he already knew there'd be a language barrier. He knew because he knew the designation of my ship, knew without studying my flight path that I'd been on my way to kill Russians. No matter how god-awful the task at hand and how strongly I objected to it, I had no way to convey my sentiments, especially while he was the one toting the gun. Then I remembered we all carried an English to Russian dictionary on board, part of every crew member's survival kit in the event of getting shot down behind enemy lines. Holding my hand up over my head, with index finger extended, I called out, Hold your horses, bud. Let me crawl back in the can for a tick. Fair enough. I walked back down to Queenie and started for the ladder, figuring we weren't getting anywhere anyway, and if he was hell-bent on shooting me, he might just as well get on with it. Turns out, there were no shots fired. Maybe because my enemy was still in a state of shock over being towed down from the wild blue yonder, same as me. I saw him walk out from under his aircraft through the cockpit glass as I was up rummaging around through the strongbox for my dictionary and was relieved that he didn't seem to be trying to draw a bead on me up here. I found the little book right where it was supposed to be, at the bottom of the box beneath a sizable stack of what looked like newly minted rubles. <laughs> I chuckled to myself as I pocketed the coins and the book, wondering whether I might simply pay this guy to leave me alone, like a bully in a schoolyard. I must have startled him when my boots smacked back down on the ice. He'd been doing a walk around of his aircraft, checking the fuselage and vertical stabilizer for damage. So when he noticed I was once again outside, he stepped back out of the shadows and pointed his pistol in my direction. Не двигайся, товарищ. Держите руки так, чтобы я мог их видеть. Again, no clue as to what he was saying. Instinctively, I raised my hands, one of which held the dictionary. Quickly thumbing my way through the pages, I started formulating a response the least threatening litany of gobbledygook I could string together, and hopefully not mispronounce. Пожалуйста, I stammered. Ждать, играть в игру, ты говоришь, я слушаю. Я говорю, ты слушаешь, иметь дело. Apparently, my earnest attempt at communication must have given him cause to rethink the situation. Игра. Came his reply. Это опасная игра, товарищ. Конец всему. Итак. I rifled through the pages of the dictionary, trying to keep up, quickly figuring out most of what he said. I exclaimed, I pointed to his aircraft, then to my own. The Soviet pilot removed his helmet and tossed it down in a snowdrift. Striding out to about midway between our two birds, he looked up and suddenly 
Облако не так безветрено, никакой подъемной силы под крыльями, только электричество, похожее на антигравитацию. Очень странно. Возможно, побочный продукт ядерного взрыва в воздухе. Я не знаю. Не в состоянии объяснить. To clear air turbulence, like riding out an invisible tsunami. Tsunami, да. The pilot echoed. I managed a crooked half smile as I squinted up at the cloud, still hanging up there, unmoving above the vast, outstretched plain of ice. Should have blown on by, surely by now. Ага, облако не в порядке. I reached into the zippered breast pocket of my flight suit and pulled out a pack of smokes, feeling the need for a little nicotine inhalation to smooth out the mounting sense of dread. Before I even registered that I tucked it in there, my chest piece, a little token good luck charm I carried with me on every mission, got hung up on the cellophane wrapper of the pack and toppled out on the ice sliding sideways over the slippery surface until it came to rest at the feet of the Russian pilot. Bending down to pick it up, he spun it end over end in his palm as he examined it carefully. Of course, it was the queen. Pinching the base between his thumb and index finger, the man held it out in front of himself and nodded, smiling. You got shakmatic, da? I repeated. I lit my smoke and then held out the pack. The Russian nodded and strode up to me, pulling a cigarette out of the pack and placing it between his teeth. I cupped my hand around my lighter and held it out for him. He inhaled deeply, then blew a billowing puff of smoke from his nose that quickly dissipated in the cold breeze. Спасибо. Handing me my chest piece, the pilot turned and started toward his aircraft. Shouting back at me over his shoulder, he said, It was a strange thing to consider. A game. A harmless pastime. With the enemy. Moments before zero hour. The end of everything, and I was about to spend the precious time I have left playing a game of chess. Maybe so, I muttered under my breath, but certainly not unarmed. Climbing back through the hatch of little Queenie, I quickly retrieved a sidearm from my survival kit, squirreling it away in one of the zippered pockets of my flight suit. By the time I dropped back down on the ice, I saw that my opponent had already returned to a spot about halfway between the facing nose cones of our two airplanes, imposing winged warriors facing each other down, both fully capable of delivering death to the other on a grand scale. Out there on a little chunk of exposed rock, he was setting up our battlefield, a metaphoric clash between east and west, 
ground zero for one last little microcosmic chapter of World War III. Noticing that there was no place on either side of the board to plant our respective asses, I looked up the Russian phrase for sit down, then climbed back up the ladder one last time to grab a couple of folding benches, striding out to the chessboard with them tucked under one arm. Saditsa, I said, holding out one of them. The Soviet pilot took the bench from me, unfolded it, and placed it down in the snow on the other side of the board. Spicy about. He replied again, which I now assume to mean, thank you. I nodded, then parked myself in front of the board and waited. Moment of truth, I thought. As my adversary seated himself, he patted his chest. You won. He said. Leroy, I responded, extending my hand out across the board. Ivan feigned an awkward smile and shook it nervously. Then, gesturing down, he said, which I quickly translated to mean, your move. Out of courtesy or otherwise, he had set up the pieces with Wyatt on my side, which really didn't mean much, certainly no particular advantage. I slid upon out two spaces, then folded my arms. Ivan responded in kind with a single space, and as they say, the game was afoot. Frostbite was a real possibility out here if the game ran long, but then I figured the chances were good that there'd be plenty of fire and brimstone pretty soon to warm things up. Odds are, this is a no-winner just a distraction to help us forget the event that we were both supposed to be participating in. What good is a game of chess on the brink of oblivion? There would be no winner today. Just a shit pot of mushroom-shaped chess pieces turning the board into a smoldering, irradiated cinder. Already feeling a sense of inevitable defeat, whether I won this game or not, I half-heartedly pushed my rook out into the fray. There can be no winner, Ivan. You, me, everyone. We're all gonna lose, in the end. In a fairly bold move so early on, Ivan slid his queen forward four spots to a diagonal square on the far side of the board, then started thumbing through his own Russian-to-English dictionary to determine what I had said. After a moment, he somberly nodded in agreement. He replied, He paused and waved his hand across the board, then reached both hands out, gesturing to the world at large. Translating his words, it took a moment for them to sink in. Who wins here, wins all. The notion was interesting, but a little far-fetched. If and I understood him correctly, I think he just implied that this match, this insignificant chess game, could somehow have an effect on the outcome of the war. For the life of me, I couldn't see how it would matter so much as one iota to the people of Earth. 
It would, however, be an interesting way for at least one of us to spit in the eye of the powers that be. An epitaph seared into the spaces of a chessboard left behind from what was once a civilization. I scoffed, offhandedly dismissing the idea. The mutant microbes rising up in the aftermath wouldn't understand the message anyhow. Ivan, I said, don't you think that's a little far out in left field? He didn't bother translating my question. For the first time since we both planted boots on the ground here, Ivan tried his hand at speaking English. Business go off. No talk, he muttered awkwardly. Just play. It wasn't eloquent by any means, but I had to give the boy an A for effort. Sure thing, I fired back. Suppose I'll just play along for a spell and see what happens. I took a moment to look things over, then cautiously made another relatively minor move, another pawn, so as to open up some wiggle room for my other rook. He moved a pawn as well, and then I slid my rook to the far side of the board to start fortifying my position. In what was to become the first casualty of the conflict, Ivan boldly slid his queen ahead of space and captured the first pawn I'd put into play. Still trying to open up a few more lines of defense, I brought another of my frontline soldiers out, then watched in disbelief as my Soviet opponent snuffed out another of my little fellows with his queen, leaving his girl standing toe to toe with my own milady. There she was, ripe for the taken, completely unprotected and vulnerable. My brain reeled. What the hell was he doing? I looked up into Ivan's face, examining his rough, time-worn features for a hint of what he had in mind. A crooked little half-smile formed beneath his scraggly, unkempt mustache. Neither of us said anything, just staring across the board, past the face, through the eyes, into the soul. This particular endgame was grinding around those gears in there, one part skill, for the most part, trust. Luck, ironically, was just a side effect at best. I didn't take his queen. Instead, I nudged my king a smidge. I couldn't tell if Ivan was surprised, confused, disappointed, or relieved. He inhaled deeply and leaned down behind the rock, producing a bottle and two shot glasses. Vodka, he said, popping the cork off the bottle. He filled both glasses and then handed me one, extending his glass out to arm's length over his head. He shouted up at the lingering supercell above us. Why are they preaching him like this? I quickly made a point of translating Ivan's toast. The reason we are here. Ivan nodded, my understanding apparently plain as the nose on my face. 
Both of us quickly downed the shots. Then Ivan flung his glass out across the eyes and pointed up. As if he were jabbing an accusatory finger into the eye of some omnipresent spectator looking down at our folly, he uttered one single word that somehow managed to stay hanging suspended in the frigid air between us. Oblica. Oblica. So deliberate the tone of his voice, I nearly tore the pages from my dictionary to discern the translation. Cloud, I repeated in English as I turned my attention skyward. The stormy blight still hung up there, unmoving and seemingly unchanged in structure, size, and consistency. That wasn't all, though. There was more than enough of a hefty breeze blowing across this here frozen landscape to push around the old buttermilk sky. This billowing supercell hasn't moved or changed at all since the moment Queenie and I took a nosedive into her turbulent depths. There's no denying it. Seems like some kind of force at work up there, I said. Standing up from the game board, I clomped around the lake bed, squinting up at the thing, trying to get a bead on any sort of forward motion. Nothing. The cloud itself churned and boiled with plenty of kinetic energy, but it certainly wasn't going anywhere. As I stood there staring down this unnatural aerial phenomenon, I started feeling more than a bit uneasy. There was something more than a visible mass of condensed water vapor floating around up there in the atmosphere. Ivan and I were being watched. The hows and the whys I couldn't even begin to conjecture. Malevolent? Maybe. Indifferent? No. Whatever's up there looking down is single-mindedly captivated by this contest between cold warriors. Turning back to face my Russian counterpart, I said, Ivan, my worthy adversary, seems like there's a whole lot riding on our game. Ivan raised an eyebrow and scoffed, what? then made his next move, a little side shimmy that made me stop to consider whether I'd just drilled a hole in an already floundering ship. Queen takes pawn. Check. There again, I could have just bowled right over Her Majesty in one swift swipe of my wrist, but instead, I moved His Royal Highness out of the line of fire. Knight takes pawn. Queen to Bishop four. Rook takes Bishop, and so on. I quickly learned the Russian word for check. It. I heard it plenty of times as the minutes and hours dragged on, but then, to my own credit, so did Ivan. The two of us didn't say much more than that, mostly because casual conversation was impossible. Slowly but surely, we were both of us working toward that unspoken endgame of some sort, and I suppose whosomever proved to be the resident chess master was going to carry the day, one way or t'other, winning much, much more than just a key to the bragging rights. You'd have thought 
that sitting out here in the near zero chill would have had us both rendered stone cold dead from exposure. But I guess nerves, heart rate, and a double dose of adrenaline must be hard at work fighting back the frostbite. Somehow, I think both of us knew the omnipresent bookie was up there taking bets. Hard to keep your cool with the notion that everything might just be riding on checkmate. One by one, the pieces fell on either side of that metaphorical iron curtain. The balance of power, for the most part, equal. A strong indication that we were, both of us, well-matched in the fine art of war. Both skilled at reading each other's moves well in advance of them being made. Studying the depleted board, I wondered if it might just be a microchasm of planet Earth by now. A few scattered pieces of humanity roaming the leftover wasteland, still holding on to the notion of a winner in the end. Another thing. While we were obviously continuing to whittle away at each other's forces, there seemed to be some kind of weird synchronicity to the gameplay at large. Turning points when, for whatever reason, an obvious move could have been or should have been made to tip the scales toward the Kremlin or the White House. Maybe it was fear, neither of us willing to lock and load a warhead on the board, deliver the final blow masquerading as a bishop, a knight, or, ironically, a little queenie. One by one, we moved around the pieces, trying to hold death at bay a few moments longer. When push really did come to shove, it seems, we weren't ready as a species to become extinct. Call it mutual cooperation, or just postponing the inevitable, if and you like. Ivan and I rattled a few abject sabers out there in that frozen arena, both of us holding the end of everything pinched betwixt a thumb and index finger. Hopelessly lost in my own reverie, I became momentarily distracted from the game, making my next move as a knee-jerk, then taking my finger off the piece, well ahead of thinking things through. I first noticed my mistake in Ivan's eyes, razor-focused on the board with a wide-eyed hint of disbelief. I panicked. Quickly studying all the possible combinations, I saw it. A tragic oversight, an unintentional blunder that was going to put my royal family and a whole lot of their loyal subjects in a world of hurt. I knew full well that Ivan saw it too. Hell, couldn't miss it. There it was, plain as day. His next move. Checkmate. Ivan had me, and consequently the free world, dead to rights. Like the distant roar of some colossal beast, done stalking its prey, and now prepared to strike, thunder sounded from the cloud, long and sustained. Maybe a signal from above 
that the unknown presence was ready to let slip the dogs of war on my people. Resonating within the resounding rumble, there's no telling whether the voice from above was tinged with glee and satisfaction or mournful resignation. If in this little competition had been a gamble of the gods, a whole lot of divine currency was just about to exchange hands. I looked over at Ivan. He sat there, unmoving, his arms at his sides, looking back at me with a wide smile forming across his face. I suppose he had every right to be happy, certain now that no one in the good old USS of R was about to get vaporized and snuffed out of existence. The whole scene was surreal, everything seemingly playing out in slow motion and without a sound save the rapid pounding of my own heartbeat, a death drum to march the dead man walking off the field of battle. I saw him raise his arm, fingers poised to take hold of the queen and deal the final blow. Two spaces straight on and it would all be over, all of it. Ivan's fingers wrapped around his queen in a deliberate embrace as he picked her up, holding her suspended above all the other doomed pieces on the cold, dispassionate game board below. Here it comes, moment of truth. I closed my eyes tight and held my breath for another timeless moment, wondering what it was gonna feel like in the end. Burned alive or gone in a flash? I heard him set the queen back down with a barely audible tap, and I knew the game was over. A breeze kicked up and tasseled my hair as I carefully slid my hand in my pocket and clutched my lucky chess piece. So long, little queenie, I whispered. Then, in broken English, Ivan announced, Stalemate. Had he delivered the message in Russian, I'd have most likely figured he said something like, bombs away, but no, I heard him right, no doubt in my mind. I exhaled sharply and looked down. The tip of Ivan's index finger still rested lightly on the piece, then lifted, confirming his last move. Sure enough, instead of choosing mate, he had run a diagonal path three spaces over, my king blocked, but not in check. A draw, I said, dumbfounded. But how, Ivan? Why? He reached out toward me and took hold of my wrist, pulling my hand free of my pocket, the good luck charm still clutched tightly in my balled-up fist. As I loosened my grip on the queen, laying on her side in my outstretched palm, Ivan lifted her up and turned the base so I could see it. Of course, I already knew what was there. Carved into the wood, 
in my nine-year-old daughter's own hand, Daddy. I have been gently placed the chess piece back down on my hand, then went rifling around the pocket of his flight suit, producing a tattered three-by-five photograph, well-worn and obviously well-loved. It was the picture of a beautiful little girl holding out a fresh-cut bouquet of wildflowers. Turning the picture over, I was surprised to see a single word carefully written out in English. Hope, I read aloud. Ivan took the photograph and pressed it against his chest, over his heart. Nadia is hope, he said, grinning proudly. All of a sudden, brilliant sunlight broke out across the icy plain as the cloud formation overhead unleashed one last rolling clap of thunder and then dissipated entirely like a throng of spectators that had seen enough and decided it was time to go back from whence they came. Once again, I held out my hand, this time in friendship. Well played, bud, I said. Ivan shook my hand confidently this time. Ivan left his game board and pieces out there on the ice, a testament to a civilization that still held out hope for tomorrow. We faced each other down as enemies today and parted ways as friends. Too bad the whole daggone world didn't have that bird's eye, top-down view of our little foray. Maybe the powers that be might have learned something. The sound of jet turbines spinning up to speed was music to my ears as both our respective airplanes roared back to life like sleeping dragons, all rested up and ready to once again take to the sky, backing away, standing down, and turning tail from that damnable line in the sand. Snow, in this case, I said, <laughs> with a light-hearted little laugh. I saw Ivan strapping himself down into Bison's cockpit across the way, and I offered him up a heartfelt salute. The Soviet pilot returned the gesture, then throttled up his bird, slowly turning out to face the wide open lake bed, and then lighten up his two big afterburners. Swirling columns of snow and ice crystals kicked up a glittering stream as the bomber lurched ahead and quickly became airborne. Figuring that Ivan had just now cleared up any doubts about the stability of the ice, I went ahead and put the spurs to Queenie, pointing her nose out into the wind. I was just about to light the candle and take a ride back upstairs when I noticed what looked like a pair of people waving their arms wildly over their heads and sprinting flat out in my direction. Well, butter my butt and call me a biscuit. Bullseye, Jiff it pop. You all a little late to the party, boys. 
Come on now, climb in and let's ride. Back at cruising altitude, I was surprised to discover that we never actually passed beyond failsafe. Whatever the event turned out to be, I was reasonably certain it was never gonna show up in the history books. Matter of fact, we received orders en route back to base, stating that we were all to be debriefed, citing matters of national security. Of course, I thought, the usual M.O. What happened back there, Skip? We saw a Soviet bison take off from your location. Truth be told, that's how we managed to find you. Did you actually engage the enemy? I wasn't at a loss for words this time. We played a dangerous game today, Jeff. We found out quite a bit about each other in the process. Equally matched, for sure. Just not willing to lose what's ultimately important. On either side of a political chessboard. I thought of Ivan's photograph, the picture of his little girl. Hope, Jeff. We all need a little hope. There is no evidence of, or for that matter, to the contrary, that what you've just heard is a factual account, except, perhaps, a discarded chessboard, forever frozen in time like a modern-day fossil. Tangible evidence to the folly of mankind. World War III ended in stalemate. It happened that way then. Will it happen that way again? Maybe so. Maybe not. Unless, of course, we can somehow see past our differences and imagine a world that still lies ahead, somewhere out in the boundless reaches of thin air. Episode 20 of the Thin Air Podcast Anthology, Cold Warriors, was written, produced, directed, narrated, and told by R.J. Lonsdale. The voices of Leroy King and Ivan were performed by yours truly, Wild Bill TikTok, and the voices of Jeffrey Porter and Clay Sheridan were performed by R.J. Lonsdale. Audio production for this Thin Air episode by R.J. Lonsdale of Flyby Studios. Music compositions used in this episode include Martian Cowboy by Kevin McLeod, Dystopia by Per Kilstofti, Vanguard and There Was a Time by Scott Buckley, and Through the Wind by Pavel Lewandowski, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. This has been an R.J. Lonsdale Flyby Studios presentation.